Well, good morning. Um, thought I would read a quick poem. Just chose this last minute here. This is a Sabbath poem from Wendell Berry from 1982. Uh, it's just titled Number 10. So I guess it was his 10th one that he wrote that year. The dark around us come. Let us meet here together, members one of another, here in our holy room. Here on our little floor, here in the daylit sky, rejoicing mind and eye, rejoining known and knower. Light, leaf, foot, hand, and wing, such order as we know, one household, high and low, and all the earth shall sing. Before I get started, I do want to claim that promise that Jesus made that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we will be witnesses to the very end of the earth as a result of that, and that is true even in this moment. Um, So we are in our fourth chapter of our read through the book of Proverbs. Um, By way of reminder, I want to revisit a few of the reasons why we are in this book. Um, the four of us who do the, uh, essentially the preaching, uh, usually discuss quite a bit in advance for months, perhaps even for years, the content we, mis- we, we may wish to go through or think you all might need as we together walk our pilgrim paths. This series on Proverbs is connected to the previous two, at the very least, We did the Gospel of John way back a couple years ago because we wanted to delve into who Jesus was and is. We need that to be more clear in our minds today more than ever. That's why we did the Gospel of John. Next, we decided that it would be wise to go deeper with the teachings of Jesus, to take a closer look at what the center or heart of Jesus' teaching was, which is why we went through the series on the Sermon on the Mount. Again, we live in a culture today that it seems most helpful to us to be better neighbors if we are marinated in the very words of our Lord. Our world needs them now more than ever. And over the course of doing those two series and before, we had, and before that, we had kicked around the idea of doing Proverbs. We, we discussed it, but then went on to John and, and Sermon on the, Mount, on the Mount. But we never thought it would, was the exact time or the right time that we needed uh, to do that series. Um, What better book to tackle right now in our world than the Bible's premier passages on exercising wisdom for life? But then we were coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount series and Proverbs became glaringly obvious uh, for us to choose to go through. And so we are here. Uh, We are preaching through and gleaning as much as we can from the book of Proverbs. And we hope that you guys get at least a little bit of a modicum uh, from this wonderful book. I think of all of us, uh, including, you know, not just the four who mainly preach, but even Kim, who has guest preached, and others, if we could somehow see even a slight increase from you all about exercising godly wisdom, I think... I think we count ourselves successful. So that's why we're doing that. 
Last week, Buzzy brought up a topic that I thought I would add my uh, thought or two on because it's a real and perplexing topic, and I'm glad he brought it up, and that of repetition. He talked about how it may seem that we're reading the same words, phrases, and ideas and preaching through them, and he's right, we are. Uh, The Father in these passages seems to be harping on the Son quite a bit about wisdom, almost laboriously so. Perhaps God is a bore. Perhaps his memory is flawed and he didn't remember a mere verse or two before that he actually talked about that already. Or maybe it was Solomon's fault. Maybe he's the bore. He certainly is flawed, as we saw from Scripture. But then this says that God didn't have the power to break Solomon out of his tedious personality and his flaws. But we know that these ideas are ridiculous. I mean, God a bore? I don't think so. The being who created the hummingbird or the sunset? (laughs) I don't think he's a bore. Flawed memory? God having a flawed memory? Not likely. How else would every wrong be made right unless you had a good memory? That's in the scriptures. Every wrong will be made right. I bring that up all the time in my mind. I'm like, how is that possible? And as far as not being able to overcome Solomon's flaws, I think that question is answered as well. If God is not able to overcome Solomon's flaws, let alone ours, then he is not a God worth following because we'd be wasting our times with someone who is powerless. And God certainly is not powerless. He is the king of kings. So we have to conclude that this repetition is for a reason and a good one. One of the general principles of biblical interpretation is that of the weight of importance of a topic. In other words, the more a topic is talk about, talked about, the more important it potentially is. So, for example, if Jesus had talked about unicorns for a th- in a thousand different places and then talked about minotaurs in about ten different places, which do you think we would consider more important to Jesus? Well, it would be the unicorns. He talked about them more than minotaurs, right? Well, we know that Jesus didn't talk about unicorns or minotaurs, but you get the idea. If he talks about one subject more than another subject, then it's possible that that subject has more importance to us uh, than the other one. That's why people bring up, I think, like, what is it, hell and money? Jesus talks a lot about hell and money. Hmm. Anyway. So, that's... the. Uh, preaches to this uh, repetition idea. So wisdom is talked about a lot in this book and in others. So uh, how important is the wisdom of God to God? Well, rather important to us. We'd have to conclude rather important. The second thing to remember about repetition, especially with the word of God, is that his revelation is not a class to be completed. Like in school or college, that when you finish the class, you finish the topic. No, his word in our lives is like that of a vineyard. One that you live on for a lifetime. When you're young, the wine and the work that you do to produce that wine may seem different, even laborious at times, than when you mature on that same vineyard. And you taste that wine over many, many years, and you do the work over many, many years. So the way you would taste and do the work when you're younger may be different than the way you do it when you're older. The word is, as Hebrews says, living and active. 
It's an organism, so to speak, not merely content. So repetition plays a vital part in our growth on this pilgrim path to see Jesus face to face. You've already heard about wickedness and wisdom. You've heard, we've read repetitive admonitions from the Father to the Son in Proverbs. And it won't be the last time we read these kinds of phrases. Use that to focus your prayers to God to ask Him to reveal Himself to you and us as we continue our sometimes tedious march through Proverbs. It's not a terrible thing. We all have tedious things. So let's get to this passage. In these ten verses, I want to look at three things. Uh, One is avoiding the path of the wicked. Two, the wicked are wicked. That's not the New England version of wicked. How do you say it? That's wicked awesome. No, that's that's the way New England say it. No, this is evil wickedness. And three, the parallels of light and dark. And then I want to end with a clear scriptural example of these points. So... In verse uh, 14 and 15, Solomon writes, Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Uh, Sarah's version said evil men. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. This is not the first time this kind of language has been used by the Father so far. In chapter 1, verse 10, it reads, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. So this admonition of stay away from evil paths, evil places, evil beings, evil persons. And in other places, we see the contrast given between the woman of wisdom who calls out in the streets and we see this image of the adulterous woman who entices from from the shadows. For Solomon to state clearly to avoid the wicked and their way is not surprising, but it is consistent. So, how does one avoid the path of the wicked? How does one not walk in the way of evil or pass on, as verse 15 says on? Says it. Uh, it's a, basically, there are two parts to this answer, how to avoid this. There is one that's relatively easy to do, and then there's one that's absolutely impossible. So, find encouragement in that. How do you avoid evil ways? This may seem like a simplified answer, but it still has merit, and that is you just don't do it. Remember that, uh, um, what is it, uh, Bob Newhart? I fear being buried alive in a box. Stop it! (laughs) It's kind of like that. Just don't do that. That's simple to say. Avoid evil ways by not doing them. Let me give you a simple example of this. How many in this room have murdered another human being? If you have, please lie to me. (laughs) How many have murdered? Okay, good. If you have done it, please come tell me personally, and then you'll have to be willing to go to the cops. Anyway, all right. Uh, Okay, how many... This may seem an oversimplified question. How many have um, burglarized? Like gone in and ch- uh, stolen a car or from someone else's home? How many in this room have? Again, if you have, don't tell me. Just lie to me right now. Tell me later. Anyone? Okay. How many of you have encouraged this kind of behavior in others? 
Okay, good. That was the hard part. Okay, not really, it was easy. By not committing these acts of wickedness, so to speak, you are actually, in a practical sense, contributing to the righteous state of our neighborhood and society. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's a pretty simple thing. I mean, just don't murder. (laughs) Don't steal. Well, you are contributing to a better society by not doing that. By not doing those things, you are making it unnecessary for law enforcement to be involved and for legal personnel to go into the courts to take the time and expense to enforce and prosecute. That's a good thing, right? You are also, by doing those activities, a visible advocate for your neighbors to also avoid such behavior. That's kind of the easy way. Just don't walk. You see that path. You clearly see that path. Don't go down that path of wickedness. And you're an example to those around. And you actually help, in a general sense, our neighbors and our society to be better. Theologian Derek Kidner, in his commentary, said that uprightness, there are basically two aspects to uprightness, moral and practical. Now, this aspect of avoidance of evil is practical. The more people we have avoiding the obvious acts of evil, the more we have a potential for civil neighborhoods and societies. That is a good thing, right? In the movie Master and Commander, there was a scene that illustrates this point. While sailing the South Pacific, the captain of the HMS Surprise, Jack Aubrey, played by Russell Crowe, is having dinner with his officers, including the intelligent and pensive surgeon of the ship, Stephen Maturin, Maturin, played by Paul Bettany. It's a good movie. You should watch it. At At one moment in the dinner, Captain Aubrey observes two small weevils from a biscuit on the plate on the table and asked Dr. Maturin to choose one of them. Dr. Maturin scoffs and says, I wouldn't choose either. They are the same type of weevil. He even uses the Latin name for them because he's that intelligent. Captain Aubrey uh, insists the doctor choose and says, if you had to choose, doctor, uh, if you were forced to choose, which of the two would you choose? To which, after a long gaze, the doctor gets his glasses out at both weevils. Dr. Maturin chooses the weevil on the right side of the plate, for he says it has more length and girth and therefore would have an advantage. Suddenly, Captain Aubrey slams his hand on the table and exclaims, There, doctor, I have you. And he's kind of doctor's surprised. He's like, What are you doing? He goes, Don't you know, doctor, that in the service you must choose the lesser of two weevils? And the tables bursts out laughing, and the doctor, having the fun set in, says his pocket had been picked. But you see the point there. The same is true for this practical side of avoiding evil. We are choosing the lesser of two weevils. Right? The lesser evil is not to murder. The lesser evil is not to burglarize. Those are, those are attainable in, in our own efforts. One passes on by not act, doing these acts of killing and stealing. But what of the greater evil? What of the greater weevil, the one with more length and girth, that clearly had an advantage? Well, that's the curveball. 
And this is the impossible part. Remember, there is the easy part. Just avoid it. It helps make a better society. But this is the impossible part, avoiding evil. And that curveball comes from the very mouth of Jesus. It actually comes from chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew, which we already went through not too long ago in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 20, Jesus starts it out by stating stringently this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Those are the guys that were avoiding evil and stealing. The righteousness has to exceed their efforts? Oh, wow. But then Jesus takes it even further. In verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That that should make you a little bit more, a little bit uncomfortable. Makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So let me ask you another question to follow up the ones from earlier about murder. How many of you? have been angry at a brother or a sister or a family member? Raise your hand. Come on. And how many of you have maybe insulted one somebody, whether intentionally or not? Yeah, I mean, every hand is going up, right? should go up. If you don't, join me, because I am righteous too. You know. um, sure, for periods of time... And sometimes, even for a lifetime, we can exercise the lesser of two evils and avoid murder and burglary and such, but there's hardly ever a time we can avoid such things as anger and insults. That is a severe rule that Jesus just said there. Our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of even the most righteous person of our society. If you even are angry, you're liable to judgment. If you insult, you're liable to judgment. If you say you're, you, you fool, you're liable to hellfire. In Luke 18, there is a moment where after Jesus talks about this same problem of the deeper moral problem of humanity, after this encounter with the rich young ruler, that his exasperated listeners and followers ask Jesus, Who then can be saved? when they realize that not even supposed righteous people can pass the test of righteousness. Jesus even states at the end of Matthew 5 that we are to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect. Peter picks up on that in his first letter when he writes the Father saying, you shall be holy as I am holy. This is impossible. We, along with the Apostle Paul, must exclaim, as he did in Romans 7, O wretched people that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? So we can avoid evil to a degree, which is better than not avoiding evil at all. But at the same time, it does not take care of the condition of our wickedness. 
Let me make my second observation about this passage. The wicked are wicked. Not wicked awesome. They're wicked. In the past sermons, I've addressed a similar topic in trying to work out the harsher sides of God's judgment and wrath. And I certainly bring those same thoughts here. But it's good to revisit these aspects uh, of this. Let's read verses 16 and 17. For they, the, the wicked, the evil, cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. In these verses, Solomon, and by default God, seems to call people wicked and evil. He doesn't state that clearly here, but he does in the two verses in my first point. He calls it the path of the wicked and the way of the evil. In these verses, he seems to describe a little of the character of the ones who follow those paths. They cannot sleep unless they've done evil. They lose sleep if they haven't made someone stumble. And they even dine and drink on wickedness and violence. This is not just broken people being described here. These are individuals who are actively seeking the destruction of others. Kidner called it, uh, it's almost a duty. We have a, I have a duty to make someone stumble. I mean, that's how far it seems the language goes. Even so, I find it hard to call people wicked and evil sometimes. However, that in our current culture, that seems to have changed a little bit. Calling someone wrong or evil just for so, holding certain ideas or positions has become easier. Could we be deceiving ourselves about how dark we can truly go? Now, there is a difference between me calling someone evil and Jesus doing it. I did a scriptural search of the word wicked and evil, and I narrowed it down to the times Jesus used those words, and it's interesting. With the word wicked in the English Standard Version, the version we tend to use here, Jesus never calls someone wicked. However, he does do it in a parable. He says a master calls his servants wicked. Interesting. But then you do the word evil. There are a number of times Jesus calls people evil. Even a whole generation of people, he calls them evil. Now, Jesus is not always an image of ooey-gooey love holding the lamb in his lap saying, have a seat, have some warm cocoa for you. Are you comfortable? Can I get you another pillow? No, there are times when he stands up and the lamb is forced to jump out of his lap and he says clearly, you are evil. How do you reconcile this? I guess if someone is going to judge, and I'm trying uh, to learn how to rightly judge similarly, why not the one who knows how to do so perfectly? I think we should learn from and follow a God who is in fact right in all their perception and judgments. How do we know this about God? Psalm 19, 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is, is pure. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. 
more to be desired than any gold. They are than any gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. If God's judgments were inaccurate, if he calls someone uh, wicked and his judgment is flawed, and they aren't wicked, then he's not a good judge. Now, I'm not prepared to say that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the apostles, the God of our forebears and forefathers, is a bad judge. Not if he is the source of all that is good. Now, there, remember, there is a divide between utilitarian evil and moral evil. And I would suspect here in this passage that the ones being called wicked are not only morally evil, but they are also acting on that evil. They are evil also in a utilitarian sense. That seems clear here. They can't sleep unless they have done wickedness and made someone stubble. So I think we can exercise some level of judgment ourselves that people are evil, at least those that do so consistently on a utilitarian basis. But we should hold that judgment with a looseness towards our Lord. He is the ultimate righteous judge. Only he, only his Judgments are forever right and good and correct. And we as individuals in a community need to follow that and live here. I was trying to think through what would be a practical example of this. How do we, how do we live that way? I mean, and then of all places, it kind of appeared to me a couple of weeks ago when uh, Sarah and I were watching, uh, the, and Stephen's going to love this example, watching the final episodes of The Bad Batch. Do you guys know about this series on Disney Plus? It's called it's an animated series called The Bad Batch, and it's about this group of five clones from Star Wars. You'll have to look that up. They're, they're soldiers. And there was something unusual about these particular five. They were different clones. They were warped. They had special abilities that the more common ones did not have. Their fellow brother clones, okay? So they turned them into this specialized unit that could go out and do special things. One of them was super strong. Another guy was a really good fighter. Uh, one was really good with tech. And then another guy was a good sniper. Okay, so in this series, it's right after uh, the occurrence wherein all the Jedi are killed. Do you guys remember that from the, the movies? They killed all the Jedi with Order 66. And we'll have to have Steven do his imitation of Palpatine. Well, the clones had these little chips in their head. And, and when the emperor, evil emperor clipped the chip on, they turned to the good guys towards the Jedi and killed all the good guys because they couldn't help but think. Well, these five guys had struggles with their chips because they were, they were unusual clones. Some struggled a little bit with it. Others were like, what's going on? The chip didn't work. Others kind of worked partially. Well, one in particular, his, the sniper named Crosshairs, he had the strongest desire to kill the enemies of the Empire, the enemies of the Jedi. So the rest of the season is all about what happens to them, and they're finding their place after this goes down. They, the four others, they don't want to kill any more Jedi. They have no desire to do that because they think it's wrong. Well, Crosshairs thinks it's right, and he wants to go after the Jedi, and he wants to go after his brothers because they are rebelling against the Empire. Okay, So in this one particular episode, Crosshairs and his fellow soldiers of the Empire capture the lead guy of the Bad Batch. His name is Hunter. Okay, 
And so the rest of the Bad Batch guys try to go after and save Hunter. The whole time, they think Crosshair is being affected by the chip in his head. He's not making this choice except by the chip in his head. He has no choice but to come after us. So you see, he's not utilitarian evil. He's being utilitarian evil, but not morally. You see that difference? He's being affected by his chip. So that's what's making him act wickedly towards us. So we need to save him because we want to get the chip out and then he'll be morally not evil, right? So in this episode, at the very end, uh, the place that they're doing the rescue is destroyed uh, with them in it. And it's about them getting out and Crosshairs is with them. And he's getting out with them, though he's doing so reluctantly. But, but they, both, they all want to survive, so they're trying to get out of this structure that's sinking into the ocean because it's being destroyed. Well, as they're going along, they find out that Crosshairs actually removed the chip himself. He says that at one point, and you see a scar on the back of his head. And he says, I choose to do this. It's not because of the chip. I took the chip out. I choose to do this. And the other four can't believe it. They're, they're like, we thought it was just the chip. And so when they hear that he has chosen this path of wickedness and that he is, in fact, making a wicked choice, they realize that he is on a wicked path and they are not. And so they leave, but they leave him alone and don't kill him. Because why? He's their brother. Even though his, their brother Crosshairs wants to kill them. It's the same with us in the way we should act towards our fellow human beings, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should point out if they are, in fact, on paths of wickedness, but we still love them. They were like crosshairs. He's still our brother, even though he wants to kill us, (laughs) even though he's not killing us right now, even though he wants to undermine us, we still would treat him or them with respect, even as... We say, you're on a wicked path. So I think that's one of the practical ways that we can call someone evil or wicked. Realizing that there's still a brother in Christ. There's still a brother human being, brother or sister human being. But we're, not, we're going to be wise about how we interact with them. Much like the, the bad batch, the four good guys, are treating even their twisted brother. Crosshairs. Let me go into my last point. The parallels of light and dark. In verses 18 and 19, it says this, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. What I find interesting here is that these last verses are actually, uh, uh, about these last verses, is how they're wrapped up in the previous stanzas. The images of light and dark reinforce what the Father has been saying in the previous eight stanzas, if you look at it. Look at verses 10 through 13. You have four verses about righteousness. Then in verses 14 through 17, you have four stanzas about wickedness. Then in verses 18 and 19, you have one stanza each, one on righteousness and one on wickedness. So you have a poetic structure here to remind you. Four, four, one, one. So these one ones are kind of to summarize the other four stanzas each. 
The word of God is more poetic than we could imagine. And these last stanzas, righteousness in verse 18 is like the light of dawn that turns to the bright day. And wickedness in verse 19 is like the darkness, but not just any darkness, it's deep darkness. So dark that the wicked can't help but stumble and not know why they're stumbling. Jesus in John eight twelve said this, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. In John 8, Jesus said, he is the light of the world. And then in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father, to your Father who is in heaven. God created the light. He is the light. He said he is the light. And now he's given that light to us to pass on. As I was thinking through this sermon, I was trying to come up with what would be a good example of this tension between someone following the utilitarian part of avoiding the path of wickedness and then the moral problem of being upright. And my mind drifted immediately to probably Jesus' most famous parable, and that of the prodigal son, or in this case, the two sons. If you want a fuller explanation of what I'm sharing about uh, in this particular point, uh, I highly recommend Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God. It is an in-depth treatment of this story, and it is a masterful work. It's a book I would recommend to anyone, follower of Jesus or not. It explains the gospel in such an engaging way that even if you weren't a Christian and you read it, you would have a better understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So in this, we have the story of the prodigal son, or the two sons. A father has two sons. One of them says, I want my inheritance now. And he gets it. The father gives it to him, and he goes off. The younger son goes off to foreign lands and makes choices that are poor. And in the midst of that, he realizes after many, many, many perhaps years and days that he made a poor choice and that he, if he went back to the father and were a mere servant or slave like the others, he would be better off than he was in that instance of feeding pigs. So he goes back and the father greets him joyously, kisses him, calls his servants, puts his ring on his finger and puts on his cloak and says, let's have a party, kill the fattened calf. And while they're celebrating, the older brother comes out from the fields, comes in from the fields. And as he draws near, he hears the uh, the music and the dancing, and he calls for the servants and finds out what's going on. And they tell him his brother has returned, and they're they're partying. And the older brother won't go in. And the father comes out to him and says, Why not come in? Your, Your brother who was gone or lost is now found. And Jesus leaves it open as to what happens there. Now, if we were to look at the two brothers using what we have read in Proverbs 4, who would be the wicked brother? And who would be the righteous one? Well, I think it's pretty clear the younger brother we would have tagged as wicked. He made poor choices for a long time. Squandering his wealth, so to speak, on prostitutes as his older brother. And of course, the older brother would be the one who would have passed evil by. 
He was the one that made the utilitarian right choices. He was the upright one. He chose to stay with the father and work the land. He obeyed his father and respected what his father thought was right. He was doing utilitarian uprightness, as Derek Kidner said. However, both brothers were lost. Both are lost to the moral condition of humanity. Though one appears to be more righteous than the other in a utilitarian sense, both are wicked when it comes to the righteousness of God. The younger brother is trying to justify himself by not justifying himself, uh, himself at all. The other brother is trying to justify himself by leaving, living a just life under his father's house. But both fail. Both need salvation. Both are wicked. Only one is more visible than the other. Right? In our passage this morning, did you happen to notice verse 17? You see anything familiar in that verse? Bread and wine. Again, the image of bread and wine. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Jesus fulfills both the lesser evil of utilitarian uprightness and the greater evil of moral uprightness. He is the true older brother in that he didn't stay at the farm but went and sought his brother out. He sought us out because we have been both at times utilitarian. Uh, It's utilitarian evil and also morally and because Jesus was not only utilitarian upright, but also moral upright, he was exactly the person that we needed to take care of this problem with that for us. And in fact, he ate the bread of wickedness. And he drank the cup of violence. Remember that prayer he said in Gethsemane before he went and was hauled off? If it's possible, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. Jesus drank that cup for us. He drank. It's like he went into the very presence of the wicked. And he ate their bread. And he drank their wine. And he said, you are now free. So, how can you not rejoice at such news. If you're being utilitarian and upright, please continue to do so. I encourage you. It is the lesser of two weevils. But also, we must realize that we absolutely need the moral uprightness of our Lord. If we don't, it's just empty utilitarian uprightness. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks for uh, this time that we can take a moment and look into your word and uh, just be in awe of your your work. Not just your work, your very being. You lived the law. You fulfilled it. And then you consciously took on 
the judgment of those who did not follow it. And then you defeated death by rising from the dead. And now you offer that to us. Thank you for drinking, for eating and drinking the bread and wine of wickedness and violence so that we wouldn't have to. Now you've handed that to us and you're offering it through us to this world. Help us to be good, good brothers and sisters to each other with this and good neighbors and offer that same light that you have given to us. Pray this all in your name. Amen.